The sermon text this evening is from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. These are the words of God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Ephesians, this explosive letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus that lays out these glorious doctrines of grace that we talked about last week and also lays out the way for us to walk now as uh, new people in Christ. God, I ask that you would take uh, the words of my mouth and you would make them profitable to your people. I ask that you would give um, all of those who would hear this ears to hear, to not kick against your word, but to submit to it. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. It's good to have more space in here. <laughs> I won't be sweating so much up here just yet. All right. Well, last week, um, who was here last week? Let me just see how much review I will need to do. All right, so there will be a quiz. <laughs> It's a trick question. All right. Uh, last week, we asked the question, what is the most offensive doctrine that Christians believe? And we said that it was not six-day creation, though that's what the Bible teaches. It's not that evolution is a lie. It's not the gender binary of male and female. It's not even God's disapproval of sodomy or the ethics of Old Testament law. I argued that none of those things are uh, most offensive. I, I argue that grace, this doctrine of grace, is the most offensive doctrine that we believe. More specifically, I said that it is God's electing and predestinating grace that offends us most. And so, why is that? If you remember, as we read in Romans 9, it means that God will have mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy, and God can harden whomever he wants to harden, and there's nothing that you can say back to him. We are clay, God is the potter, and you don't get to argue with your maker. This offends us. We don't like this. But what this also means is that if you are fashioned into a vessel of mercy, that the reason you were fashioned that way is because of God's good pleasure alone. Not because of anything inside of you. Not because of your free will. Not because of your good works. Not because you're cute. Not because God foresaw that you had a lot of potential. And if he just made you a vessel of mercy, you could do some really good things for him. No. The only thing that grounds God's election is his good pleasure. And this is what we call Grace. This is what the essence of grace is. To have nothing in yourself that you can boast about. And to just simply have to put your hand over your mouth and just wonder that God saved you at all. The real question should be, well, why did he choose me? Why did he choose me? And this is what causes Christians to worship. Well, um, after last week, I uh, contemplated this doctrine a bit more, and um, I got to thinking about how the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, relates to this teaching about grace. And so I want to just drive this a little bit 
uh, 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 drive this home a little more before we get into our text. So, uh, did you know that God in himself would still be good even if he never saved anybody at all? God would still be good if he never saved a single soul. Before the world was, God was infinitely holy, good, perfect, and glorious. Jesus says in John 17, 5, when he's praying to the Father, he says this, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before there was a world, Jesus shared glory with the Father. He is glorious within himself. He is good within himself, whether he saves anybody or not. Neither creation nor redemption add anything to God's triune perfection. He's good before he saved a single soul, and God would remain good had he never saved anybody. And when you say something like that, it's not long before heretics come along. And what heretics try to do is use God's attributes against him. They ask stupid questions like, how can a good God send anyone to hell for all eternity? Now, why is that a stupid question? Well, it's stupid because it's a man-centered question. It makes man the center of the universe as if God exists for us. But they got it backwards, right? We exist for God. God has life in himself. He is life. And we are dependent, contingent creatures. He is creator. Nobody created him. In God, there is no before. He is himself being. His essence is life. He is pure, holy, righteous, and just. As we just sang, he is immortal, invisible, the only wise God. So the real question is, how can this God let any sinner into heaven? Or as Paul asks, asks in Romans 3, how can God be both just and the justifier of the ungodly? That is the real theodicy. That's the real problem and tension that you find in Scripture. How can David commit adultery, kill Bathsheba's husband, and God comes and says, but thou shalt not die, I have put away your sin. This is the question Paul asks in Romans when he says, how is it that God could just pass over these former sins? And that's a good question to ask. That's a good theological question, not a, not a bad one. And of course, the answer to this question is Jesus Christ, the God-man, that this infinite, unchangeable God would take on finite, changeable human flesh. Why? So that he could die so that he could rise again and conquer death, so that he could forgive you, so that he could give you his righteousness, adopt you as a son or daughter, make you an heir of all things. That God that I just described does not need you, and yet he wants you. He loves you. That's what grace feels like. When someone doesn't need you, but shows affection, kindness towards you, man, that's way better than if it's owed, isn't it? That's what grace is. And this is the message that will conquer the world. It's guaranteed. 
Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So you have this message, right? This is the message we want everyone on the University of Idaho campus to hear. This is why we're here tonight, to drive this home. So I want you to continue to think about grace. Think about the God who saved you. Because if you know him, it will change everything else. It'll make everything else in this sermon just be like, oh yeah, of course. But still, I need to tell you some things. <laughs> I always do. So this is all foundation. I want you to get this into your bones. And at some level, my sermon kind of follows the flow of the book of Ephesians. If you've ever read uh, the book of Ephesians, it's six chapters long. And the first two chapters are very dense theology. Number three, there's this, there's this great section on love. And then Paul gets really practical. He says, you know, stop gossiping. And here's how husbands and wives are to be. And children got to obey their parents. And so uh, this sermon is going to kind of follow that that flow. So grace has to be the foundation of everything that we do. And uh, the sermon is also kind of a bridge to next week. So next week, um, if you look in your bulletin, I think on the second to last page, uh, next week we start a new sermon series called It's Good to Be a Man. And Papa Doug, Pastor Doug, is coming and he's preaching. And then Toby and then me and then Doug again. So this is kind of the setup. So I want to do some kind of Theology 101 before next week happens. So it's an introduction tonight. And the sermon title asks, How do men and women conquer the world? So the sermon title is Grace and Dominion, How Men and Women Conquer the World. And uh, so I want to look at that question, and I want to answer it from the book of Ephesians. And what I want to do is look at one word in Ephesians 2.10, and then trace that word through the rest of the books. So if, if you have a Bible, you can follow along, but if not, I'll be giving you uh, the addresses as I call them off. So let me read one more time Ephesians 2.10, our text. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's that word, walk. Now this word walk is used in Scripture to mean more than just physically you know, walking from place to place. It says in Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked with God and then was not, for God took him. And that and then was not, that enig enigmatic then was not, is he just, God took him because he was a righteous man. He lived for how many years? Who knows how many years he lived for? Come on, guys. 365. Yeah. There's some, there's some cool numerology there. I don't know what it means, but, but it's there. If you figure that out, let me know. So Enoch walked with God, and it doesn't mean, you know, he's just literally like walking through the arboretum with God on a, on a date or anything like that. Um, and it says in Genesis 17:1, when God makes a covenant with Abram, he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And so all through the Bible, if you just look up this word, you'll see how it's used. Uh, Proverbs 6, 12 to 14, this is a great picture of the wicked man. It says, a worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. And in Psalm 73, you have this uh, picture that's of the proud that is, uh, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. 
right? Can you just imagine a big tongue, like, strutting through the earth? That's, that's what the proud do. So, uh, do you walk with a strut? Do you, as Proverbs says, shuffle your feet? I'm not sure what that looks like. Uh, but you can tell a lot about a person by the way they walk. Right? I was just at a Logos volleyball game, and it's funny, watching all the little kids walk around, and I just kind of, I know who their parents are, partially because of how they look, but even their mannerisms, right? How they walk. I can tell, I know that walk, right? You can tell a lot about a person by the way they walk. For Paul, this word, walk, in the Greek, peripateo, is synonymous with how you live, your behavior, how you conduct yourself. So how do men and women who have been saved by grace now walk? How do we live? How do we conquer the world? And the answer Paul gives in Ephesians 2.10 is by, quote, walking in the good works that God prepared beforehand for us to do. You're supposed to walk in good works that God prepared when? Beforehand. You see, not only was your election predestined, the good works for you to do were predestined too. Those were prepared beforehand. This is why James can say, faith without works is dead, because God does not give you faith without giving you good works as well, right? It's a package deal. The good works come after, but they are a necessary fruit of faith. So what are these good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in? And the way that Paul answers this question in Ephesians is kind of peculiar. He doesn't just say, all right, you're a Christian now. Uh, Feed the poor, take care of widows and orphans, tithe, and there's your good work quota. You're good, right? He doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is tell the Ephesians how to walk. How to walk. And if you look up this word, peripateo, through uh, the book of Ephesians, you'll remember earlier in uh, chapter 2, he says, you once walked according to the spirit of the age, the spirit of darkness, and now you're walking in the light. So uh, in in chapters 4 and 5, he talks about how you're supposed to walk. So in Ephesians 4.1, he says, you are to walk worthy of your calling. In 5.17, he says, don't walk like the Gentiles walk. In 5.1, he says, walk in love. In 5.8, he says, walk as children of light. And in 5.15, he says, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. So you can tell from the context what circumspectly means. It means don't be a fool. Be wise. Walk wisely. So that's how you're supposed to walk. In love, in light, not like the Gentiles, worthy of your calling, not as fools, but as wise. And after telling them how to walk and what that looks like, he then gives some specific instructions to three groups of people. They are husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and servants. Okay, So think about those three things that Paul's talking about. Husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and servants. And then he ends the book with a command to put on the whole armor of God. So why did I just go through all that, you know, laying out the book of, of, of Ephesians? What Paul is doing is giving us an instruction manual for humanity 2.0, humanity united to Jesus Christ. Because now that we have the Spirit of God, we are enabled to do what our first parents failed to do. What was Adam and Eve's task? 
Well, they were to extend the Garden of Eden to the four corners of the earth. I like to make this a verb. They were meant to Edenize the world, to extend God's temple, God's dwelling place, God's blessed paradise to the whole world. That's what the essence of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth meant, was taking God's sanctuary and making it global. So, do you understand the implications of this for you? When Jesus rose from the grave, he was like Noah, stepping out of the ark after God flooded the earth. And now it's time to repopulate. It's time to fill the world with image bearers of God. And the way he does this is by giving the Great Commission, by sending his disciples to preach a message of grace that raises the dead, that makes people new in Christ. So our task as Christian men and women now is to fill the world with true worshipers, with true image bearers of God. And so the Great Commission is an expansion of the dominion mandate. We make disciples as we make babies. We subdue the earth as we declare the lordship of Christ over it. This is our holy warfare, and every man and woman is called to be a part of it. This is how God is making all things new. This is how we Edenize the world. This is a lot of theology, <laughs> but this is important for you. I, I assume you are a student who wants to learn, a student who wants to grow. And in order to do that, it's going to take some work. So I want to ask you, right now, living in Moscow in 2019, what can you do to Edenize your little piece of Moscow? What does it look like for you to make whatever space you are living in a little more like Eden, a little more like the kingdom of God, like a place of peace and harmony? That is something that you should talk about. Talk about that with your friends, or talk about it over Froyo tonight. Uh, so what I want to do in the remainder of my time is just give you one point of application that should affect everything else. You should all read through Ephesians a few times this week to get those specifics, but let me give you just one meta-principle that should hit close to home and will get expanded on in our next sermon series. All right. Here's your principle. Men and women conquer the world by walking according to their creational norms. Say this one more time. Men and women conquer the world by walking, living, according to their creational norms. One of the most common mistakes I see Christians making today is that of androgenizing the faith. Do you know this word androgyny? Yeah? What does androgyny mean? Not distinctly male or female. Yeah. Not distinctly male or female. To be of indeterminate sex. To be sexually ambiguous. And what many people do is take a passage like Galatians 3.28 and radically misinterpret it. Here's Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, if I just read you that verse, you can imagine that maybe androgenizing the faith 
is exactly what Jesus came to do. Right? And this is, you, you read the commentators, you read, you know, liberal theologians. They don't believe that Paul wrote, like, Timothy and Titus. They don't believe Paul wrote a bunch of these other letters. But they look at this, and, and this fits the spirit of the age, the spirit of egalitarianism. And so they're like, oh, this is Paul for sure. Yeah, this is Paul at his best. Um, <laughs> but bad readers of Scripture take this to mean uh, that Christianity is an androgynous religion. If Jesus Christ came to free us from our creational norms and gender roles, well, we have a problem here. Um, so how are we supposed to interpret this verse? Well, it helps to just read the verses before and after, and I'm going to read you those. So Galatians 3:26 says, For you are all sons of God. Think about that. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what is Paul doing? The point he is making is that everyone in Christ is an heir according to the promise. And do you know who can be an heir of the promise? Only sons. Only a firstborn son, right? And so sons of God is a theological category about inheritance, about you being an heir. And this is a really important doctrine. Like, we have to teach this because it means that Jews and Gentiles, and if you're a woman in here, it means that you have equal status with every man in Christ when it comes to the inheritance of the Abrahamic covenant blessing. Right? And if you were a Gentile looking at the, uh, uh, the Israelites, you're like, well, Abraham is not my biological father. Well, Paul is saying, if you're in Christ, you're, you're Abraham's child. You're an heir according to the promise. He's not saying that when a woman is baptized, she becomes a literal male son of God. But ladies, you are a son of God when you are baptized in the inheritance sense. So we, we must not be children in our, think, in our thinking, right? We need to be able to read the scripture so that people don't just quote this to you and you're like, oh, well, yeah, I guess I am a dude. <laughs> so this is a glorious truth that we must proclaim. Being in Christ does not make you androgynous. If Paul believed this, why would he then give instructions specific to Jews and Gentiles, bondservants and masters, men and women? So don't be held captive by this egalitarian error. It is utter foolishness. So if that's the error, what then is the truth? How does the Christian faith affect our maleness or femaleness? I want you to think for a moment about the fruit of the Spirit. Who knows what they are? Who can just rattle them off? Just go. Just say it. Give you guys a B plus. <laughs> Pretty good. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Okay, so those fruit of the Spirit are not platonic forms. They are virtues to be enfleshed in a male or female body. They are adjectives that modify the noun man or woman. So 
I am to be in Christ a loving man, a joyful man, a peaceful man. And love, joy, peace, etc. will look different if you are a woman. Okay? You guys tracking with this? The best example of this is in marriage. In marriage, a man loves his wife by imitating Christ's love for the church. This is what Ephesians 5 is all about. And so what does Christ do? He nourishes us. He feeds us. He washes us in the word. He makes us beautiful and glorious. So that's, that's the man's job. That, that's how he loves his wife. That's not how the woman loves her husband. Right? There's Love looks different for whether you're the man or the woman. The woman loves her husband by submitting to him as the church submits to Christ in everything. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. The church reverences Christ. We honor and respect him. And so wives treat their husbands with respect. That's how they love their husbands. Uh, Pastor Doug likes to use this illustration of a couple singing a duet. So if love is the song we sing, the man sings the bass or the tenor, and the woman sings the, what? Alto soprano. See, I'm not a music person. The high part and the low part, that's what I know. So they have different parts, but it's the same song that they are singing. And when we both embrace our parts, when we both hit our pitch, we harmonize, right? Am I right about that, music people? We harmonize, right? We fill the air with music. It sounds great. And what feminism has told women is that unless you can sing the man's part, you're not equal to the man. Do you see that? Congratulations, you just played yourself, right? And, and this is why, <laughs> that's funny, and this is why you have so many women right now running themselves ragged, trying to fulfill a role that God never asked them to fill. It's part of why you've never met a happy feminist. Modern feminism, I speak the truth, Modern feminism is a great uglifier of women because it tells them to live and walk like men. It twists scripture, like Galatians 3.28, to place women under this bondage of trying to sing the bass. You weren't created to sing the bass. Neither was the man created to sing the soprano, alto. Yeah. When we are living our lives in a way incongruous with the way God created us, we are going to be frustrated, discontent, unhappy, ugly. And this is the air we are breathing right now. Equality. This good word, equality. We just said the women in here are equal with the men in regards to the inheritance in Christ. That is a glorious truth. Christianity gave that truth to the world. But you know what? We are not uh, people that, um, we are not all repla uh, replaceable, right? A man is given certain gifts and certain roles that are different from a woman. And we just can't get this into our heads. 
One of the reasons why the dating scene is a mess, why men are hesitant to get married and prolong their singleness, is because, as Proverbs 31.10 says, a virtuous woman who can find. And it makes you wonder what Paul would say to us in 2019. How does grace restore a woman's beauty? If feminism is the lie that makes us ugly, what is the truth that would make you beautiful, that would make you glorious? Let me close with a very um, uncomfortable, practical point of application. Ladies, if you want to walk according to your creational norm, you could start by growing your hair out. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.15, if a woman has long hair, it's a glory for her. This is what I mean by creational norms. And if you don't believe me, just ask a group of men what's more glorious, long hair or short hair, right? If men, if I said, all right, set you up on a blind date, and there's two women, you only get to go on a date with one of them. The only thing I'm going to tell you about them is that one has really long hair and one has really short hair. Which girl do you want to go on the date with? All right? Yes. <laughs> And all the men said, amen, right? <laughs> and, and, and I was thinking about, do I really want to say this tonight? <laughs> I told my wife, baby, this is what I'm going to say. <laughs> Just want to give you a heads up. But the fact that we squirm when we hear this, right? This is what scripture teaches. It does say that in the Bible. Right? This is in the New Testament, people. The fact that we squirm when I say some, something like that is proof that we've all been totally living and breathing in this egalitarian feminist air. Right? We can't say something like that without someone saying, but what about if you have chemotherapy and lose all your hair? Right? We try to take exceptions and make rules out of them. But exceptions make terrible rules. So don't, uh, so I'm, I'm just trying to tell you, live according to the way God made you. Right? This is a pretty basic thing. And it might be as simple as growing your hair out. Or if you're a dude, it does say it's shameful for a man to wear his hair like a woman, long. Right? I don't want to be in bootsers looking at someone and being like, I don't know if that's a guy or, or a girl, like, I'll have to wait till they turn around. Right? That, we, all, we all actually know this, we just don't want to say it. Okay? But scripture says it. And the crazy thing is, we live in this insane age right now that needs to hear this. That needs to tell you things like, hey, did you know that male and female are different? They're very different. Very, very different. I've never seen a bunch of little boys having a tea party. <laughs> right? Unless their mom makes them. Unless their mom makes them. <laughs> What's going on at the night house time? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so I, I, I say these things to you in love, okay? Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And I don't want you to take this as a rebuke um, or even as any kind of chastisement because I know most of you. And what I see in front of me really is an army of, I think, very faithful men, very virtuous women, 
and I just want our tribe to increase, okay? So what I do up here is I say these things to provide cover for you so that you can then go out and talk to, talk to people, and then when you say things that sound crazy to them, you can just say, oh, just wait till you hear this other guy named Aaron, right? <laughs> so this is what the preacher is meant to do, to preach God's word to you, right? I'm not making stuff up out of here. This is just what the Bible says, and to, to put it out there so that you can then love and embrace this truth and live this stuff. This, do you want to be glorious? Right? You were meant to be glorious. God made you to be glorious. And this is one of the ways we do it, by embracing the way God made us. So let me give you a final exhortation. If God made you a man, your creational norm is to be strong, to lead, to be decisive, to take responsibility for the consequences, good and bad, of your actions. Your superior physical strength is given to you so that you can provide and protect and build civilization. So put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Do as Paul says and walk worthy of your calling. If God made you a woman, you must learn a different kind of strength. Your creational norm is to help, to bear children, to work with your hands to nurture and raise the next generation of image bearers and to instruct them in the way of wisdom, to beautify the world. It says in 1 Corinthians 11 that woman is the glory of man. She is the crown of creation. And so use your strength to bring life into the world and to make it glorious. Man needs a helper, not a competitor. And when we both hit our pitch, we will make beautiful music. We will Edenize the world. We will shine like the morning star. May God give us all grace to love the way he made us, and may God save the University of Idaho. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the gospel is foolish to those who don't believe, and yet to us who believe, it is the power of God for salvation. God, I ask that this word of grace would go out to the reaches of this campus, to the reaches of this uh, little city, that you would take all of these souls and make them surrender, submissive, and obedient to you. God, as Christians, as people who are part of the new humanity, I ask that you would cause us to embrace the way you made us as male and female, to not uh, rebel against the norm that you have established. And I ask that we could sing in harmony together as men and as women, image bearers of you. I ask this in Jesus' name. And amen.